0: Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We're still in chapter 3. We've been looking at, over the last several weeks, this singular topic of fools and wise men. And we've explored many different facets of what fools and wise men look at. And so Paul is confronting the church in Corinth over the influence that human philosophy and human wisdom has had in the life of their church. Paul has made it very clear to us that God's wisdom has been demonstrated through the message of the cross. The source of wisdom, excuse me, this source of wisdom is regarded as foolishness. To the Greeks who have prided themselves on their own ideas of what wisdom means. So for centuries, man has asked the question, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? What is the end? What is the purpose of this life that I live? And so the Greeks had attempted to answer that question, as have all civilizations. Just as in our own culture today, there are people who seek to answer that question that others ask about why am I here and where am I going and what is the meaning of of my life. Well, as believers we are to be rooted in the truth that our lives are to be centered in the wisdom that God has revealed to us through the cross of Christ and that is the beginning and the ending of where we are to find our wisdom. Last week we looked at the influence that this human wisdom has had in the life of the church at Corinth and the reality is that these varying degrees of explanations of what wisdom is has created incredible division within the life of the church. Within the Greek culture that Paul is addressing, there are at least 50 identifiable philosophies that are an attempt to explain who am I, why am I here, where am I going. And none of these believed, excuse me, none of these agreed with one another. They all had varying understandings and explanations. And this has been added to the message of the cross. And this is what has created great division within the church at Corinth. So, the cause of the division that is being experienced in the church is rooted in the flesh. Or, as Paul would explain, carnal Christianity. Another way of describing this condition known as carnal Christianity, carnal Christianity is very simply worldly living. It is worldly ideals, worldly values, worldly purposes. It is looking to what's going on in the culture and saying, oh, I like that. I think I want to believe that this week. And then you look at something else. Oh, I changed my mind. I want to believe in that this week. And there's a constant change in what is perpetrated in our our lives as what is truth and what is not. In fact, in the youngest generation today, truth is totally up for you to decide on your own. If that's true for you, God bless you, go well, but don't impose your truth upon me. And what our society has done is stripped away any sense of objective truth that could be found, most especially. In the Word of God. So the Corinthian church has been infiltrated with a large number of differing philosophies that has separated itself from the wisdom of the cross of Christ. And the reality of that is there's nobody agreeing, nobody saying the same thing about what the meaning of life is and how do we live out our Christian life in a meaningful and in an intentional way. So Paul says that you are baby Christians. And when he calls them that, He very simply means that you are immature in your faith. You are saved, but you haven't really progressed very far in your journey. You prefer milk of the Word, the basic elements, the basic tenets of Christianity. The difference between milk and solid food is detail and depth. Well, I know Jesus loves me and He died on the cross. Thank you so much. I'm going to go live my life the way I want. Well, that's milk, right? That's but There's truth in what you're saying, but there's no depth to it. Because we have been saved, because we call Him our Lord and our Savior, that dictates how we're going to live our life. So what does it mean that He is my Lord? It means I don't set the direction of my life. He does. I don't determine what is true and false. He does. I don't determine what is right and wrong. He does. And so there's varying degree and depth within the word of God, and it can be separated into what is basic elementary truths, and that which is solid food, that which really feeds our soul and helps us to grow so that we are being conformed to the image of Christ instead of looking a lot like we did before we were ever saved. So the symptoms of this division that is existing within the church of Corinth is the words that Paul uses, there is jealousy, And strife. So, a church in conflict is a church that is suffering from the influence of the flesh and of worldliness. It's not what God says, it's what I think. It's not what the leadership says, it's what I like. And so, there's this influence of the flesh and of worldliness that creates strife. So, jealousy is the internal attitude. And strife, or the quarreling that Paul has identified in this passage of Scripture, is the external emotion. Both indicate spiritual immaturity. When you're jealous, somebody has a nicer car, or they went to a nicer place on their vacation, or they're able to upgrade to the nicest, newest iPhone. When you're jealous of those things, it indicates worldliness in us that I can't have what they have. God, where are you? Why aren't you giving to me all these good things that I feel like I ought to have? So there's this internal attitude that will manifest itself in an outward emotion. So the church in Corinth is divided over human loyalties. Paul, Apollos, Peter and others who are influential in their lives. And Paul sets out in the previous section we looked at the cure for this division is very simply glorifying God, taking the focus off of me, taking the focus off of man in general, and directing it towards God. What does God say? What does God want? What is it that pleases God? How has my salvation changed my life? How does this dictate the direction of my life? Not worrying about what other people think or say or do, but what does God say to me? When we have our focus set on God and we live our lives in accordance to what God has said, anything that happens in our life, God is going to get the glory for. This is one of the great mysteries to me. I've been a Christian for more than 30 years, and I still find it unbelievable that God can be glorified through my life. Why? Well, because I'm a wretched sinner. I am sinful and selfish to the core. I can talk the talk and I can dress the dress and I can say the right things. But in the heart of hearts, I am an unfinished work, deeply entrenched in sin. And yet in my my service to Him, I ask that He would do something in me and through me that in some small way would bring Him glory. And God does that. God does that through you. And it's not because of who you are. It's not because of your innate abilities. It's not because of your potential. It's because of the work of the Spirit that has made you into something that you were not before you came to know Him. And so each of us have the capacity to bring glory to God as we live our lives for Him. So verse 9 from last week is a segue to what we're going to continue to talk about in this week. Verse 9 says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So there's a transition from what was an agricultural analogy where one plants and the other Waters And yet God causes the growth. And so now Paul is going to take upon himself and communicating these truths, this architectural analogy, which would have spoke very deeply into the hearts of the Greek culture because they had prided themselves on the marvelous buildings that adorned their city. And so when Paul starts to talk about this architectural function that they're so well aware of, it's going to speak very deep into their heart of hearts. I guess, and I haven't thought about this, I guess for us, analogy would be building great wealth. Ooh, we like that, right? We're really in tune to that. Everybody is concerned about how much I got, how much am I going to get, and what can I do with all that I got? Thinking in the song that we sung, as the deer, do we really want him more than gold and silver? Well, we can say that, but what does our heart really communicate? More is never enough. I've got to have more. The next job, the next promotion, the next something that is going to fill a gap in me that God designed for him to fill. So this architectural analogy is where we look at now in this explanation of where we are in fools and wise men. So we are the work of God and we are called by God to do the work that he has prepared for us to do. So let's read together First Corinthians chapter three, verses ten through seventeen. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So using this... This analogy of a building, Paul discusses five aspects of the work of God's people on the earth. So number four in our ongoing outline is the work of the wise man. There is this work that we as wise people are to be setting our lives about. In the contrast of that. Is going to be the work of the fool. A lot of that was discussed in the previous section that we looked at as we saw the influence of human wisdom in the life of the church, which brought about strife and jealousy and a lot of division. So, as we look at the work of the wise man, five aspects of this. Number one, we see the master builder. We see this in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, this is really interesting because what we find here is that Paul refers to himself as the master builder. Now, we can read that and think, well, Paul's kind of proud of himself, isn't he? Is he boasting? Is he being a little bit braggadocious about what it is that he has actually been doing? That he is, quote unquote, the master builder? He's not an apprentice. He's not a trainee. He's a master builder. When you hear that word, you think, ooh, that's pretty important, right? You're not a novice. You're really an expert in this thing. So Paul refers to himself as the master builder because he was the one that was responsible for this church at Corinth being founded. This was recorded for us in Acts chapter 17 and 18. And it is through his ministry that this church was founded and he identifies his work as a gift of grace, a work of grace. So Paul is not patting himself on the back. He's only saying that, Because of this work of grace, I was a master builder who built on the foundation. What Paul is saying is that whatever is accomplished through my life and through our lives as believers is the result of God's grace, not one's ability. Paul was not a shrewd church planner, missionary, disciple, or evangelist. He didn't come up with the formula that everybody ought to learn and follow. Paul simply did what God called him to do and he relied upon the work of the Spirit to carry out that work of grace in his life and he did so and the result of that is that he was a master builder. We're going to look at this a little bit more deeply. So in verse 7 of this chapter... Paul says this, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Well, who was the one who planted at the church in Corinth? That was Paul. Paul says, I'm nothing. Apollos who watered, he's nothing. God is the one who is something because God is the one who causes the growth. Paul isn't patting himself on the back. Paul isn't heralding his accomplishment or his achievement and saying, boy, look at me, if you were like me, you could be a wiser master builder too. It's not what Paul's doing at all. He's simply acknowledging that whatever good comes from his life is re- is a result of the grace of God, not bragging, not taking credit. So as the master builder, what did Paul do? What was it that Paul did that made him call himself A master builder. Well, he built a foundation. He built a foundation that others would be able to build upon. And here is the caution that we see in verse 10. Others must be careful how they build upon the foundation that Paul, the master builder, has laid. So they will either be wise builders or foolish builders. Based upon what they build with, as we'll see in just a moment. So Paul established that he is a wise builder, the master builder, not a foolish builder, because of the foundation. What is this foundation? Well, I'm glad you asked, because he tells us here in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, already in the present tense, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation is Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. Paul did not design the foundation. He just laid it. The Father is the one who designed the foundation. The Father is the one who has established the wisdom that originates in the message of the cross. Paul wasn't the one that created this foundation. He didn't think it up. He didn't put all the pieces together. The Father is the one that designed it. It's communicated through the message of the cross and it's carried out through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's life is a gift of, is a work of the gift of grace that enabled him to know what the foundation is and equipped him to be able to lay the foundation which is Jesus Christ himself. It's an important distinction. Paul didn't create it. Paul didn't design it. Paul didn't think it up. It originated in the heart of the Father, communicated through the Son, carried out through the Holy Spirit. The foundation of biblical Christianity is the person and the work of of Jesus Christ, period. This is why Paul said earlier in our study, I preach Christ crucified, period. We don't need human philosophy. We don't need human wisdom. We don't need the current cultural fad. We don't need the new understanding. What we need is a foundation, which is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we set our lives through the grace of God to build upon the foundation that God in His infinite wisdom has already established for us. So all of Scripture, hear me very carefully, All of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Not some of it, not most of it, not pieces of it. Absolutely every single bit of it. During his earthly ministry, as he was continually confronting the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, who believed that by knowing and memorizing the Word of God, they could achieve eternal life by the vast amount of information they had memorized... Jesus confronts them and says this in John 5.39, didn't make it, I'm sorry. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. So when Jesus was confronting the religious leaders of the day, all they had to go on was the Old Testament. And Jesus says very carefully, very clearly, very plainly, all of these scriptures that you have prided yourself and knowing and memorizing and reciting, all of these speak of me. The Old Testament predicted and prepared for His incarnation. All of the Old Testament is about the coming of the promised Messiah. The Gospels tell the history of Jesus' earthly ministry. The book of Acts tells the history of His church in its early years. The epistles, the writings that we find under our New Testament, are commentaries on the message and work of the person and the work of the cross. The book of Revelation is the final testimony of His reign and of His imminent return. All of Scripture is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of biblical Christianity. And to lay any other foundation is a contradiction all of scripture. Sadly not all churches are built on this foundation. Not on the person and the work of Christ. Some are built on the teachings and the traditions of men. Some are built on the moral teachings of Jesus. And some are built on human philosophy. And worldly wisdom. That find the work and the person of Jesus Christ. To be insufficient. You know. There is a big movement in our Christian culture today to plant churches. That's not a bad thing. More churches mean more presence of God in the community, at least theoretically. But when these church planters get together and they say, you know what, the traditional church just isn't meeting the need. It isn't addressing the issues. And so here's what we need to do. We need to plant a church that is culturally relevant. We want to plant a church that is appealing To lost people. We want for the pagan to come in and feel at home. We want them to be welcomed. We want them to be loved. We don't really care if they get anything about the biblical foundation of Christianity. What we want to do is we want to make a connection to lost people and hope that somehow down the line, after months and probably years, they might hear the gospel message and by the grace of God respond to it. Let's plant a church. And there are hundreds and perhaps even thousands of churches that are being planted that have nothing to do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I think even more sadly, there are many, many churches that are in existence today that started upon the foundation of the person and the work of Christ and they've somehow lost their way. And they want to redefine what church is. They want to reinvent what it is all about. And the reality is very simply this. We need to build on the foundation which is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus gave the importance of the foundation with which we're going to build our lives when He was teaching in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. And here's what he says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Our lives, our church. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. When Paul is talking about wisdom, he didn't invent that. He didn't think, boy, I need to come up with something that really addresses the need of wisdom in the local church of Corinth. He's simply teaching about what Jesus has already said. He goes on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Have you ever seen any kind... of of structure built upon the shore of a beach, it might be a sandcastle. It might be something that somebody has made out of sticks and driftwood. And you look at that and you wow, that's pretty cool. I admired that. That's really took a lot of time and a lot of ingenuity to do that. And you come back a day later and where is it at? It's gone. It is just totally wiped out. And this is the analogy that you and I have before us today. Is that if we hear the words of Christ and we accept them and we take them into our hearts and into our lives, our lives, our church will be built upon the rock on Him. But if we don't take his words in, if we hear them and say, well, yeah, you know, that's kind of old fashioned, Jesus. I'm hip. I'm in the with it generation. You know, it's all different today. And we don't build our lives upon these things that Jesus has said. Life is going to batter our foundation, our structure, and it's not going to last What we build upon will make all the difference in the world. It will either be strong and sturdy, or it's going to be weak and flimsy. So the foundation is critically important, but so are, number three, the materials. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw not a lot of explanation about what that means. It's apparent to this community exactly what it means. So with a foundation that is sure, it is rock solid, it is the work and the person of Christ, there is still a choice in the materials that the builders are going to use. Here's the key. Here's what we need to really be paying attention to is this. As long as we are alive... We are building. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we are building. We are building some sort of life, some sort of church, some sort of Christian fellowship, some sort of Christian service. It may be be a beautiful structure, or it may be a shack. It may be built intentionally, or it may be built through neglect... But it cannot help being something. Our lives are the result of what we are building either intentionally or what is being built through neglect. Our lives, our church is either being built with gold and silver and precious stones or with wood, hay and straw. So the building materials mentioned in verse 12 are in two categories. The first one represents high quality materials. Now it was not uncommon in the ancient culture to adorn these buildings with gold and silver and precious stones. If you think back to the building of the temple, the first building that would be God's dwelling place for the nation of Israel, man alive, they had thousands of pounds of gold that was built into that temple. And it was because it was the most important structure they could ever build. It was for God Almighty. So there are these high quality materials that we are going to use that are going to be the source of the building that we will build in our lives individually, our church corporately upon that foundation. Secondly, there is the wood, hay and straw which are inferior materials. So the first category signifies the greatest faithfulness, the most skillful and careful work done for the Lord. The second category signifies just the opposite. It is the least of the materials. It is the leftovers. Now these materials do not represent wealth, or talent, or opportunity, nor do they represent spiritual gifts, all of which are good and are given to each believer by the Lord as he sees fit, are spiritual gifts. The materials represent the believer's response to what God has given, how well we will serve the Lord with what He has given to us. In other words, the structure that we build that is our life, that is our church, represents our work. Works don't save us. But we are saved for good works. Now, that's an important distinction. You can be the most moral person, the most generous person, the most caring person. You may have the, the, the greatest You may, you may have the greatest reputation the community has ever known. You may live a life that is envied by everybody that knows you. But if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that good life is not going to save you. We're not saved because of our works, but the works are the result of our being saved. This is what Paul makes very clear in Galatians, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8-10 through For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now a lot of us will stop there and will say, oh thank you God, I'm saved by grace. Let me go on my way and let me do my thing. Right? That's not what it says. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were saved to build something valuable in our life and in our church, which God prepared beforehand, these good works, so that we would walk in them. Works are not the source of the Christian life, but they are the result of it. Every Christian is a builder. Every Christian builds with some sort of materials, and God wants us to build with only the best material, which is our faithfulness, which is our righteous conduct, which is our obedience to what He's told us to do. It has nothing to do with our wealth. It has nothing to do with our spiritual gifts. It has nothing to do with the opportunity. It is very simply our faithfulness to do what God has called us to do. Only the Lord can determine which works are high quality and which works are low quality. It's not our job to judge the work of others God will be the judge of that work. By the way, we can look at someone's life and we can say, boy, that's a pretty shoddy shack they got going on over there. But God is thoroughly pleased. We could also look at someone's life and say, man, I wish that were me. And God says, you don't know the half of it. That is built on sinking sand. We can't judge what's being built. Only God can do that. He alone determines the ultimate value of each man's work. But we better be sure that we are doing the best with what God has given us because there is a test. Now you remember when you were sitting in school and a teacher was going on and on and on about something and you said, you know, this is really kind of complicated and I'm kind of confused. I'm not sure I really understand this. And so you'll raise your hand and say, is this going to be on the test? Remember that? And they say, well... better study just in case it is. What we do with what we have been given is going to be tested. All that we know, all that God has entrusted to us is going to be tested. Verse 13, Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So all that we have done with our salvation... And our service to the Lord will one day be tested by Him. The test will come in, quote, unquote, the day. The day is when our life ends or when Jesus comes back and inaugurates His kingdom. That day is the last day. This is not a day of judgment for believers. We've been spared from judgment through our faith in the work of Christ. But our work will be judged, and the quality of our work will be revealed through fire. Fire in the Bible is the symbol of testing. Just as it purifies metal, so will God's fire burn up the dross in our life and leave only what is pure and valuable. Based upon what it is we have built, the only thing that may be of value is very simply our profession of faith in Christ. And we will enter into His presence as coming through the fire. As opposed to all of the reward that we're going to look at in just a moment. First Peter 1.17 says this, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in of. During the time of your stay on earth, we are going to take very seriously this gift of salvation, making the most of the opportunity that God has given to us because one day we will stand before Him, our life's work will be tested through fire, and it will be revealed to us and to others The real quality of the life, the church that we have built. So as verses 14 and 15 make clear, this testing is not a time of punishment, but it is a time of reward. Even the one who has built with wood, hay, or straw will not be condemned, but his reward will will correspond to the quality of his building material. So when wood, hay, or straw come in contact with fire, what remains? Not very much. Nothing but cinders because they cannot stand the test. Gold, silver, and precious stones, however, do not burn. They will stand the test and they will bring great reward to the believer. Now, number five in these five aspects that we're looking at are the workmen. The workmen are all believers. So there's three types of workers that Paul is going to identify here in our remaining verses. Letter A is a wise worker. Verse 14, If any man's work which he has built on it remains on the foundation, he will receive a reward. So believers who have right motives, proper conduct, and effective service build with the best material. So what is it about our motives and our service to the Lord? Well, some do it to be seen. Some do it to communicate, A bit of a ruse. Some do it because they think it's going to benefit them in some way. Some serve with improper motives. Some serve and have conduct that is absolutely contradictory to the profession of their faith. Some serve only because it makes them feel good about themselves and about the lives they live. And those are not the proper kinds of motives and are service to the Lord. So these wise builders who build with proper motive, proper conduct, and absolute faithfulness will receive a reward. So very, very quickly, these rewards and other parts of Scripture are communicated as crowns. So there is the crown of righteousness for those who live their lives with proper conduct. We see this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's also the crown of exultation or the crown of rejoicing, which is for those who are faithful to tell others about Jesus. First Thessalonians 2.19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you, those that have are those that are the result of the sharing of their faith in the presence of our Lord Jesus as at his coming? There's also the crown of glory for the faithful pastors and teachers and shepherds of the flock. We see this in First Peter five four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory as under shepherds of the great shepherd. The crown of life is for all who endure faithfully to the end for all believers. We see this in James one twelve. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once. He has been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So when we stand before the testing of God's fire, we will be left with crowns that are our reward that we then give back to him in our worship or we'll be left with nothing but a very simple profession of faith. The second type of worker that is identified here is the foolish worker. We see this in verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So these are the workers who are wasteful with their lives. They are unfaithful with what God has given to them. They do not wisely use what God has entrusted to them they may serve but their motives aren't pure their conduct is unrighteous and their service is self-centered it has been corrupted by worldly ideals and through worldly motives so paul warned others at the church of colossae when he says in colossians 2:18 let no one keep excuse me let no one keep defrauding you of your prize or of your reward by delighting in self-abasement And the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. This is a very similar train of thought between foolish man and a wise man, one who is built on the foundation, and one who is building his life upon whatever the common popular culture is saying. So though there is a person who runs through, excuse me, the thought here is of a person who runs through the flames, but is not yet burned... Yet they smell like smoke. They come before the Lord with nothing to give back, but their garments reek of smoke as one who has escaped the fire just in the nick of time. Their work has been burned up, although they are still saved. Now the final category that Paul gives to us here, letter C, is a destructive worker. Now, this is a very challenging pair of verses to look at and to understand. And what I think helps us is this. Paul speaks of the temple of God in both a singular sense as an individual person and in a corporate sense relating to the church as a whole, which we'll see in verse 17. So let's look at verse 16 first. Paul says to this believing community, Do you not know... That you are a temple of God, and the assumed answer is yes, I know that, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Yes, we do know that, Paul, we know that we are the temple of God because, excuse me, a temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in us. So individually, all true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are a temple of God We are a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit since He dwells within us. So as an individual temple of God, we have an obligation to be a wise builder of what God has entrusted to us. So as Paul is addressing those who know they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he's issuing a stern warning to those who are the source of division individually And to the corporate environment of the church of Corinth. They are neither wise builders nor are they foolish builders. Instead, they are destructive builders or workers. They're wreaking havoc within the community of believers where jealousy and strife are commonplace and are having a terribly negative impact within this community of believers. Now, in verse 17, Paul speaks about the corporate experience. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. So here the temple of God has a corporate understanding instead of just a singular individual understanding. Paul is speaking about the church collectively. The destruction of God's temple here is is not speaking of a person attacking another person, but it is a person attacking the corporate temple of God by creating division within the church. So let me try to explain it like this If you are a destructive worker, you have been saved, and perhaps you are going to enter into the presence of God reeking of smoke. Because you haven't built upon the solid foundation. You're not necessarily attacking another individual, but what you are attacking is what others are building on the foundation of Christ. And so you are trying to destroy what they are building through the addition of human philosophy and human wisdom. So individually, you are attacking the corporate building of the temple of God in that church. Now, the warning is this as a destructive worker, if you destroy the corporate community of believers, God is going to destroy you. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God is going to take away your salvation because our salvation is a gift of grace. It isn't given to us as a result of works and it isn't going to be taken away from us as a result of works. It's simply a gift of grace. But what it means is this, is that if we are a destructive builder or destructive workers, a worker, we have set ourselves against God and God's not going to stand for that. God is going to protect His temple because why? The temple is holy. So, part of the misunderstanding about these about these two verses is Paul isn't speaking, in my opinion, to an unbelieving remnant within the church of Corinth because he says, the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. What he's saying is you are a destructive worker. You are tearing down what God is building up within this community of believers who have tried to build upon the solid foundation of the work and the person of Christ and if that is what you're continuing to do, God is going to come after you, he is going to destroy you so we have this wise builder who builds on the foundation of the work and person of Christ we have the foolish builder who recognizes the foundation of the work and person of Christ But builds his life out of something totally different. And then you have the destructive worker who is saved but is tearing down what the wise builders are attempting to build. God will not stand for that and God is going to come against that. So we are either going to be wise builders or we're going to be foolish builders based upon what we do with our lives as it relates to the person and the work of Christ. This gift of grace is an amazing gift. The salvation that we enjoy is incalculably beneficial to our lives here and in the afterlife. And in the afterlife, what we do with what God has given to us is going to be evaluated. And like a student coming totally unprepared for what's going to be on that exam. Are we going to be unprepared for the fire that will test what we've done with our life?